Hello, everybody. It's me, your old ghoul friend, Peaches Christ, and you're listening to another episode of Midnight Mass. Dun, 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 dun. Well, um, that was a lovely uh, little tune that's best going to uh, introduce our film this week. But before uh, we get to that, I have to uh, introduce my co-clown for the podcast, the one, the only, Michael Verratti. Well, hello, hello, Peaches. You know, I was thinking about it. This week's movie, in theory, their cult could be called Children of the Popcorn too. That's true. <laughs> Very much so. They're definitely Children of the Popcorn. This movie has a lot in common with my life. When I think about my friends, you know, Bianca Del Rio and Jinx Monsoon, it's like I'm surrounded with killer clowns. There's certainly a lot of severe eye makeup in common. Yeah, exactly. And sagging faces. (laughs) With these none too subtle hints in mind, uh, of course, we are talking about 1988's Killer Clowns from Outer Space, directed by Stephen Kyoto and co-written by him and his brothers, Edward and Charles, starring Grant Kramer, Suzanne Snyder, John Vernon, and a host of clowns from outer space. It's in the title. And yeah, I'm excited to do this movie because this is one of those films that is sort of a definitive cult film of the 80s that we in real time sort of got to watch grow from obscurity into a pop culture behemoth in many ways. I think for both you and I, it was always a movie that's been on our radar as we've discussed. And it's a movie that I always enjoyed, but I've also enjoyed and been inspired to sort of enjoy it more because of the ever-growing cult. And so I've always liked this movie. I've always appreciated it. But as its fandom grew and grew, it sort of caused me to go like, oh yeah, that is a great movie. Oh yeah, let's watch that again. Or I want to see that. And then of course, as we talk about in, in our interviews in the last decade or so, I mean, it's really grown, you know, with with the Universal Horror Nights, which we talk about, the merchandising and the conventions and the fan art and the cosplay. It's just made me fall in love with the movie more and more and more. So sometimes that fandom can be contagious. I think when you look at the construct of the movie, it's from fandom that Killer Clowns was born. The Kyoto brothers have always been very honest about the fact that they loved classic monster movies. And I think that that's very much on their frilly sleeves in this. As we have discussed in other interviews, when we have been asked about this movie, this movie shares a lot of DNA with The Blob, but it also has allusions to Godzilla films and other sort of monster movies and space movies and drive-in films. And even though it's this sort of grand pastiche of classic sci-fi horror, because it's this merry mishmash, it becomes this wholly unique thing that also doesn't look like anything else. And I think that's why it continued to grow through pop culture because everybody who sees it has a hard time forgetting it. And it holds up, right? Like it really is one of those films with great practical makeup and practical effects, practical design elements. The production design is all real sets and real props. And that stuff really ages well. And watching the movie today, I feel like it's just as enjoyable. Um, In some ways, I maybe appreciate the work they put into it a little bit more because I know that if they were going to like remake this movie, God forbid, the clowns, 
would be CGI. They wouldn't go to the trouble to do the animatronic faces. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, Chucky, the TV series, probably because Don Mancini is at the helm of it. You know, they still use the animatronic dolls and the pneumatic engineering to make Chucky work. But for the remake, I'm pretty sure that was CGI for the doll. And so I feel like when you see a film like this, you can see the hard work that went into the effects into the costumes and the makeup and the robot faces or, you know, because they used a variety of different means. The animation that they use. Yeah. You, know, you see the work in the movie. Well, I think it comes down to creator control. You know, in the case of Don, the Chucky movies that Don has fostered throughout all but the remake, he has maintained a creative control over. So he was able to ensure that Chucky stayed the Chucky that we have grown up with and grown to love. I would like to think if the Kyoto brothers held on to the franchise, should there be a remake or a sequel, that that practical effect work would continue because that's where they come from. They're effects artists, they're practical effects creators. As I mentioned later on in this episode, uh, you know, they did work on Critters. They did the trolls in Ernest Scared Stupid, which share some DNA with the clowns in this movie, which we also talk about later. I think that they love the practicality. And I, I think that that shows in this because as you said, it's not not an artificial world. I mean, it is artificial, but it's it's lived in. It's a world that you can walk in. I think part of the great magic of this movie is when our two leads finally go into the circus tent that they find in the middle of the woods, and it's a space. They go inside. You can see them immerse themselves in it. If, if, if it was made today, you know, as a Marvel movie, it would all be on green screen. They may not have even been together, but the Kyotos had to build that. And there's a sense of surrendering yourself and going into a new world that just makes this movie have extra magic. I'm almost positive I mispronounced the name Kyoto later in the episode. I say Chiodo. And I'm I'm very embarrassed about that because their name is not Chiodo. It's Kyoto. Luckily, the internet keeps us honest. Had you not corrected yourself, someone would have. <laughs> <laughs> They're fantastic. And they've really enjoyed and embraced the growing fandom that's come up from their feature film endeavor. Um, as you mentioned, they were effects creators and this was their opportunity to make a big movie on their own. And what I love about it is it really does feel like this is the movie that laid the groundwork for every haunted attraction in North America to need to have clowns. And the film in many ways feels like a dark ride, especially when you're in that circus tent. It feels like you're going through a haunted attraction with the creativity and the set design and this sort of spookiness and the absurdity and the comedy of a great, you know, haunted attraction. And I love seeing a movie like this, which is like, it's clearly inspired so many haunters, even before Universal Horror Night, you know, turned it into its own maze. You know, I've seen this aesthetic and this clown horror aesthetic, you know, be duplicated in so many physical spaces for Halloween. And it really does come from this film. Spirit Halloween did a massive push of Killer Clown merchandise this year, but prior to getting the Killer Clown IP, they had their own clown mascot, Crouchy the Clown, which of course, if you track the timeline, would have somewhere along the way been inspired by Killer Clowns. And I think that's important to note too, is that 
it not only inspired haunts, but it really inspired a whole subgenre of horror. Yes, killer clowns and, and tragic clowns have existed in sort of the pantheon of storytelling since clowns were invented. But this movie, I think, changed the game, changed the conversation, because in 1988, we didn't really have a lot of monster clowns prior to this. The publication of it is in 1986. So, you know, people who are literary might know about Pennywise, but we don't get the Tim Curry miniseries clown until a few years later. You know, the only real world comparison we have is John Wayne Gacy. But, you know, I am loath to cross true crime and horror. That's not something I like. So I really think that the glut or explosion of killer clowns in horror begins with killer clowns from outer space and let's not forget that the most talked about horror film that's happening right now while we record this is terrifier 2 which features a killer clown doing hideously violent repulsive things so um i need to circle back because i did not know that there was um, a mascot for spirit halloween and so i had to do a quick google search on crouchy the clown so i see crouchy I recognize Crouchy, but what is up with the name Crouchy? That's a great question. He's crouching a lot. I see that. He's definitely crouching in all the photos and things in like, you know, the costume. But I'm just like, who decided like this clown's thing is going to be to crouch? Maybe when Crouchy went to pick a clown name, all the other good clown names were taken. I know this happens in drag sometimes where there's sort of um, dissension or disagreement over where certain drag names began or who had a name first. When I was in college, I had a roommate who after one Thanksgiving, actually seasonally appropriate since we're coming up on Thanksgiving, she had come back from Thanksgiving break to tell us that her father had announced over Thanksgiving that he was quitting his job to become a race walking clown. And he named himself Willy Nilly. And she discovered when her dad became willy-nilly that there's a clown registry where you get to register your clown name. And in doing so, it prevents other clowns from using your name. They should definitely do that for drag queens. Yeah. So maybe Crouchy wanted to be something way more fabulous. But by the time Crouchy signed up. Maybe he wanted to be couchy and he was just going to lay around all day. <laughs> you know that, that that another friend of the podcast, Roz Dresvelez, she has a clown father too. Interesting. Did you know that? Yeah, her no. father is apparently a professional clown. I think he might also be a fireman or something, but like he decided many years ago when she was like a kid that he was going to start dressing up as a clown, like and do kids parties and shit. She seems a little bit warped by that. I'm not sure. We'll have to ask her about it uh, next time we have her on the podcast. Yeah, I think my roommate was fine with it. What would your clown name be? That's a really great question. I mean, since you gave me my drag name, Waffles Extravaganza, I have to say that's pretty clowny. Like, I bet I, your clown name would be Felchy. You did a felching joke last episode. You got to step it up. <laughs> did I? <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh, wow. I'm obsessed with felching. Yeah, it's this is more of a window into your life than mine. Yeah, hopefully people are Googling that. This is a good time to segue into our first guest, She's the reason we're here. Let's be That's honest. Right. Our first guest just did an exhaustive deep dive into the world of killer clowns for a piece in the SF gate and interviewed Peaches and I in the process to talk about the film's cult merits. But more importantly, talked to all of the Kyoto brothers, members of the cast and crew, people in the town that the movie was shot in. And it was her passion and excitement and sheer commitment to the history of this singular piece of cinema that made us say, hey, 
we should do that too. And I know that she is someone who also has a long history with Midnight Mass. Yeah. We're going to listen to her talk all things killer clowns right now. Here she is. It's Amanda Bartlett. Hey, everybody. Well, it is my extreme pleasure to introduce our next very special guest. Uh, She is someone I've actually known for years and is a true child of the popcorn, supporting my events here in San Francisco, really understands cult movies, and has written about yours truly a number of times, most notably for the SF Gate. She is an incredible writer, a real true film lover and enthusiast and uh, uh, just a really smart person. And she actually approached us about this movie, which is what led us to do this episode. Uh, So without further ado, let's hear it for the one, the only Amanda Bartlett. Thank you. I've said it before. I'll say it again. I'm always down to clown with you too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Amanda, you approached us because you wrote this exhaustive, comprehensive exploration of killer clowns from outer space. You talked to the Kyoto brothers, you talked to the stars of the movie, you went and talked to the people who lived in the town where it was shot. And you kind of did the thing that we do where you explored the why, the how of the DNA of what made this cult film. But the one thing we really didn't get to know in your extremely comprehensive article is where do you and killer clowns begin? I would say that my encounter with killer clowns began in a video store. I grew up in the Midwest in Iowa. Um, I think I probably had heard about the movie for the first time when I went to a family video. And as I did, I would look at the covers of these horror movies and I didn't want anything to do with them. I (laughs) was definitely the kind of person where I would read about them obsessively, go home, look at the IMDb page, re and reread the synopsis and just think I'm never going to look at this again. Oddly, I think the first cover of uh, Killer Clowns from Outer Space that I saw was not the one with the clown with the spinning globe that said it's crazy. It was the image of Shorty with uh, Debbie and Grant Kramer um, underneath. And it had the tagline um, in space, no one can eat ice cream, which I would <laughs> do it much better, but Shorty looked terrifying to me. So um, I just completely, you know, didn't really know anything about it for the next few years. And um, in college, people always talked about it, but kind of wrote it off as this sort of uh, midnight stoner movie. And um, it wasn't until I went to Halloween Horror Nights in 2019 that I truly immersed myself in the world of killer clowns. It was my first time attending Halloween Horror Nights and I was exhausted. I got the basic ticket. Um, so I was waiting in line. Never, for- ever do that. it's always worth it to pay a little more but I had gone to creep show I had gone to they had universal monsters they had house of a thousand corpses they had us there were a lot of really great attractions but at the end of the night I had to choose between 
Killer Clowns or Ghostbusters? It was no question for me. I had to check out Killer Clowns. And I remember walking up and just seeing this pinstriped circus tent in the distance and this sort of spooky carnival music, evil laughter, which of course was the Dickies theme song, which I will never get tired of. And I remember going in and it was unlike anything that I had experienced that night or ever. It was sort of the mix of the darkness and these candy colors that just really popped. And it was interesting because I had gone through all these houses where people were running at me with chainsaws or knives or it was very gory. And Killer Clowns was different because there were balloon animals and cotton candy guns and popcorn. Like it almost reminded me of like a trouble board game, like the little popping thing in there. And I just fell in love with it. Instead of screaming in fear, I think a lot of the people around me were sort of shrieking in delight. (laughs) And I think that that is where the joy in Killer Clowns comes. It's this release of horror, but it's like, it's, it's being scared, but it's also cracking up. Like it's horror and comedy, which I think both have like a similar release. Um, you experience like a similar emotion from both genres in a way. And I left and I remember like at the very end, you know, the electric guitars are playing and it's like, and I just thought, wow, what did I just experience? I wish I could go through it again. And the year before, Universal had introduced it as a scare zone and it was so popular that they made it into an attraction the following year. And I was looking while I was doing research for this article and just video, the video of the scare zone alone has over 7 million views. Like (laughs) crazy people just love this thing. And I loved it too. I went home, watched the movie and it was better than I could have ever hoped for. So that's my that's my origin story. That's fantastic. And you touch on so many things that we wanted to talk to you about. So one is um, Halloween Horror Nights. I'm sure all of our listeners know what that, that is, but we do have some listeners in other countries. So Universal Studios, which is a Hollywood production company, they have two major theme parks in the U.S., one in Orlando and one in Los Angeles. And they have an event called Halloween Horror Nights, which has really raised the bar for all of the horror nights around the world as far as intellectual property mazes and haunted attractions go. And so um, Amanda got the cheap ticket, which meant she... I'm surprised you got to see that much because when I got the cheap ticket one year, I think I got through two mazes and most of my evening was spent waiting in line. So... Now I only will ever go if I'm going to, if I have the money to buy the the most expensive ticket. Um, But I went in 2018. You're reminding me, I went to Hollywood in 2018 and I was so pissed because they had introduced the scare zone in Orlando that year. And they had the merch in Hollywood, but not the scare zone. And I felt so cheated because of course that was like the thing I was maybe most excited about. And then I have not gone back since then, mostly because of scheduling and being busy around that time of year. Um, So I haven't seen the killer clowns uh, mazes, but we talked a little bit about this for your article. I mean, there is no better movie to create an immersive experience around. I think than that one, which really was a movie version of 
a haunted house or a, you know, a fun house or, you know, like those sets and the spaceship and everything like that's what it is. You know, it's that thing of like, what came first, you know, the, the chicken or the egg. It's like, I don't remember clowns as horror tropes being as popular, especially in haunted attractions. I mean, of course we had Pennywise, the doll from Poltergeist. We had these things that we've discussed, but clowns as far as haunted attractions go exploded after that movie and i think it was that that thing of like oh look you can have this thing that we all think is of as carnivalesque um it's nostalgia for our childhood it's circus it's pure fun but we can also make it scary and creepy and weird because it really is right like there is something creepy about carnivals. So anyways, I think you're touching on legacy with your origin story because Killer Clowns is now so popular. And when you consider a movie like Killer Clowns, what is it about, and you touched on this a little bit, but what is it about this movie that to me, I feel like it's not like any other movie. You know, in the world of genre and cult movies, we often can go like, it's this and this meets this, right? With Killer Clowns, I'm like, it's its own standalone experience. So what are the elements that you think make it so unique and probably have driven it to become, you know, more and more popular over the years? I think that it had to do with the release and the timing. Of course, people were aware of the term killer clown because, I mean, and this is very um, kind of on the other side of things but uh john wayne gacy when he was arrested the press called him the killer clown so that term was definitely floating around in public consciousness and went on to inspire pennywise and it but i think that the kyoto brothers like when i talked to them they were like we don't like slasher movies we don't like the idea of men killing women or you know people killing people on screen but when it's a monster, they have free reign. We want to see monsters do these things, which I thought was very interesting. And I think it also has to do with how the movie pays homage to these 50s sci-fi movies that they grew up with and that they were in love with. What we talked about in our earlier conversation was how the blob, beat for beat, like the first act of the movie, you know, is essentially the blob. And then they took that concept and ran with it and made it funny and swapped out all of the kills for clown gags, basically. So I think that and that dedication to the bit is what people really love about it. Um, But I think it's also in the 80s, I'm not totally sure, but I think that people talked about how, I think people have always been afraid of clowns. Um, And it makes sense. I personally, as a child, you know, growing up in the 90s, early 2000s, I hated clowns and people were fine with them. They wanted them to be in these public spaces where they were just startling you. I actually remember going to Yonkers with my family as a child and there was like a sale on children's clothing or something. So my mom took my brother and I there and I remember seeing a clown there and I was like, Nope. uh -uh. But the clown was making balloon animals for everyone. And I wanted a balloon animal. So I asked my older brother (laughs) to stand in line and get one for me. And I was 
hiding, you know, kind of wandering through the clothing racks, peeking over there every so often. I think at one point I crawled into one of those circular clothing racks and hid for what to me felt like an eternity, but was probably five minutes. And I kid you not, when I stepped out of there, the clown was right in my face and said, would you like a balloon in the most (laughs) grotesque guttural voice? And I just lost it. Um, And so I think a lot of people have memories like that. There's even a deleted scene in the movie where Debbie talks about experiencing the circus for the first time and seeing a clown and their white cakey faces, their dingy teeth and their yellow eyes and how one of them pulls up in a tiny car and comes and like just starts dancing around her. All these clowns are dancing around her in a circle and she says, I was terrified. And she tells Mike, you know, I never wanted to run away with the circus. I wanted to run from the circus or something like that. I'm really sad that they took out that scene because I think it speaks so much to her character and how she confronts her fears later on. I think that that concept is something that really resonated with a lot of people. But what the movie does that I think is also really interesting is that it takes the concept of clowns and subverts them, but in a way where the people in Crescent Cove don't take the clowns seriously. They see them and they're like, oh, this is funny. There's the puppet show sequence. Somebody comes up and is like, oh, like I just want to watch this, even though they're alone, which I think we also talked about this in an earlier conversation. Why would you watch a puppet show alone at night? (laughs) You know, there's like the clown that looks like an animatronic in front of the pharmacy and people just kind of wave it off. And so I think it speaks to this sort of infiltration of clowns in our everyday lives But then people in the movie don't take them seriously, and that leads to their demise. So I'm wondering what exactly, like that could mean so many different things, but you know, maybe we should be taking these clowns seriously because they are scary. Everything you said speaks to sort of what makes the DNA of it terrifying and engaging all at once, because you spoke of the experience of seeing a clown as a child and being afraid of the clown. And I'm always fascinated by that duality because kids see things that adults choose to ignore or think is silly. And I think a lot of chlorophobia, the fear of clowns starts in childhood. Some kids are drawn to clowns because they are inherently colorful and made for children. And for those exaggerated reasons, other kids are repelled by clowns. I think it's that fine line between whimsy and menace that really makes this movie work. And I was really fascinated by what you said about how the Kyoto brothers were not interested in slasher movies. They wanted to have these sort of like bright, colorful things. And I started thinking about some of their other creations, like the Critters from Critters, the Killer Clowns, of course, the Trolls from Ernest Scared Stupid. These are all very cartoony things that by virtue of, of what you're saying their intent was, it's like, oh, they're monsters, but they're safe. But in a way, it makes it worse, right? In a way, it kind of makes it worse because we enter this uncanny valley territory. And of course, we've been addressing this all along. But I think that I'm wondering if you think that's part of it. The fact that we don't take it seriously and it's that disregard of something that's right in front of us or just like thinking of it as sort of frivolous that brings us back around to engagement. I think it totally does. I think something that's also really interesting and validates sort of the fear of clowns as well is that it's not normal to be happy all the time. 
And clowns are happy all the time. They have this painted on face. There's something very unsettling about that. I think also that just the disguise component and not really knowing what they are can be also very terrifying. Part of the reason that the movie struck a chord with people and became sort of a little bit of a terrifying boogeyman for a generation of filmgoers is because inherently we don't take clowns seriously. And then here you're confronted with this thing that it's like, oh, you should have basically what you were saying. Something that's also kind of interesting, though, is that if you look at the clowns in the movie, I mean, they're not really clowns. I think what the Kyoto brothers said was they wanted to create this alien race of white slugs that just happened to have markings that made them look like clowns, which is very strange. But what they wanted to do when they were creating the clowns is I think they actually consulted AJ, the original Ronald McDonald, to talk about how they were going to have the clowns behave. How could they have the clowns talk to, you know, the actors in the movie in a way that made them appear less threatening because it, it is kind of funny. I mean, the opening scene with Farmer Green and Pooh Bear, the dog, yeah. uh, when he sees the clown after his dog goes missing and he's outside of the circus tent, he kind of calms down a little bit when he sees the clown, which is a clown's approaching you in the dark. Why would you calm down? But he, <laughs> he sees it and he's like, oh, I'm going to be okay. Like there's someone here to help me. And then of course it does not go that way. But I think that that's really interesting that they kind of wanted people to be approached by clowns in this movie and to not be unnerved, to be at first to feel almost comforted by this vision. You have done all of this research. You've talked to the creators, just things like, you know, hearing like they didn't really see the clowns as clowns is fascinating because, yeah. of course, you know, we see them as clowns. I mean, everything about them is clown. But I understand like the face and the the sort of distorted bodies and, you know, they don't look human necessarily. So they really are a hybrid of something else. Um, but the Ronald McDonald thing is so Interesting, because I actually think Ronald McDonald is something we all grew up with. You know, he became an internationally recognized symbol of something that ultimately, at the end of the day, we learn the older we get, the more we understand nutrition, the more we understand about fast food and things. You know, Ronald McDonald's a pusher of toxic shit. You know, ultimately, as adults, you know, we start to realize we've been fed a lie. That yeah, who's fucking, the real killer yeah, clown? No, seriously, <laughs> right. that fucking clown is responsible for more, you know, heart attacks than I think probably, you know, definitely more than John Wayne Gacy killed people, you know. So it's 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 sort of an interesting thing when when we realize like, oh, yeah, like we grew up with Ronald McDonald. We grew up with the doll from Poltergeist. You know, we grew up with these things. And so by the time you get to killer clowns and then watch its trajectory as a cult movie, really pick up steam 10, 20 years after it was made. You know, I do think there is a connection to all of that. And I do think there's a connection to Ronald McDonald. I don't think I'm reaching. He's terrifying. As this researcher, what other trivia can you share or little tidbits of knowledge might we not know that you were able to discover? Like, was there anything really that surprised you? Because the, the Ronald McDonald thing, that's that's kind of amazing. Something that I personally found the most interesting when I was looking into this 
movie. And actually how I started um, researching it was I had interviewed uh, Justin Cohn, who was one of the animators on The Nightmare Before Christmas, which was created at Skellington Productions in Soma in San Francisco. I think there's a lot of interesting parallels between Nightmare and Killer Clowns, particularly with the release and how people didn't really get it quite at first. But there's all this subsequent merchandising that happened afterward. And you have the Nightmare Before Christmas overlay at Disneyland. And then you have the Killer Clowns haunt at Universal Studios and this sort of appreciation that came on later. When I was talking to Justin about his other work, he was telling me that he had done the shadow gag in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And I was taken aback. I said, I love that movie. And so um, I kind of kept that in my back pocket and thought, if I have a chance to write about this, I'm definitely going to reach out to him. So I thought that that was really interesting that someone who before they worked on Nightmare Before Christmas had been working with the Kyoto Brothers on Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He also did some work on um, Robot Chicken. He uh, animated for uh, Mad God and Anomalisa. But I think the most interesting thing to me was when they wanted to work on this movie, they originally wanted to film it in Capitola in uh, Santa Cruz County. And the police chief was very against it. He thought that the title was would cause um, irreparable damage to the town's reputation. The city manager was less apprehensive about it and just kind of waved it off as this movie. I think um, I was looking through the newspaper archives and in this article in the Santa Cruz Sentinel in the 80s, he sort of described it as this movie like Space Invaders with these creatures looking like clowns or something like that. And ultimately they did not allow the movie to film there because they had, there was a made for TV romantic comedy called When Your Lover Leaves that they were trying to film a few years earlier and it caused issues with parking spaces and um, small businesses like weren't too happy with this. So they didn't allow it, but Watsonville welcomed them with open arms and they were very cool about it. And I think they even lent them like a public bus for a scene. They absolutely wanted to be a part of the killer clown family. And I think what was surprising to me was that people in Watsonville love this movie now. Um, And I think they always have. I believe it's their recreation and park department is now housed in the police station where they filmed several scenes. And uh, someone there said that they just recently had a sci-fi horror and comic convention called Nerdville. And hundreds of people show up to this thing. And the centerpiece event was a screening of Killer Clowns, like back where it was filmed. The Kyoto Brothers went there for the first time in 35 years. People like were wearing the costumes, they were dressing as like shorty and fatso. They were just obsessed. And I think that there's also a killer clown lowrider club in the town, which I wasn't able to get in touch with anyone. But if anyone out there is listening and is part of it, I would love to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's insane. Have you seen pictures of that? I was unable to find pictures, but if I do find them, I will send them to you immediately. Yes, please. I do have pictures of people dressed as the clowns in front of the filming locations like the gazebo and the Goodwill and um, some other spots. 
I just think it's really cool to see how people are appreciating this movie now. On the flip side, I called uh, the Santa Cruz Film Commission and they were kind of like, this is the first time anyone has called us about this movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's a first for everything. You mentioned that folks dressed up as the clowns from the movie. And as we know, each of the clowns has sort of a distinct style, a distinct look. And each of the clowns has uh, kind of many cults of their own. What is your favorite clown in the film? I am going to go with probably the fan favorite. How can you not love Shorty, who (laughs) rolls up on a tricycle with the best kill in the movie, the uh, knock my block off moment is possibly the best decapitation scene in cinema (laughs) (laughs) well is that also your favorite kill favorite kill you know i think that that might have to be my favorite kill as well that's just it's pretty iconic yeah i think we talked about this but do you two have your favorites changed when we talked which wasn't that long ago a couple weeks ago right i think i had settled on the pie kill. <laughs> what are you going to do with those pies, boys? <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's so ludicrous and wild and memorable. Like, I love watching the actor sell it. I'm not sure that he yeah. does sell it, but he tries. He definitely, you know, gives it his best. But I don't know. There's so many great kills in it, you know. Mine is the shadow kill. I love uh, that. I think just the conceit of it and the execution, it's brilliant. I mean, that in of itself is an iconic moment. Mm-hmm. And I think the moment where somebody gets piled with that like whipped cream stuff. And then I think it's also Shorty who puts the little cherry on top. That's also (laughs) perfect. (laughs) Yeah. As you know, as a listener of the podcast and a friend of the podcast, one of the things I like to ask folks is about their changing relationship with these films. Now, you really minted your love of Killer Clowns after that walk through the haunt, but Then you went on to do what may be the definitive article about the film's history. And after digging into all of that research, how has your relationship with this movie changed, if at all? I love it so much more than I think I ever thought possible, which is very funny considering me starting out as this little girl who hated clowns. I mean, and at another kid's fest, Ronald McDonald once made me cry. Um, I, <laughs> so it's very ironic that one of my favorite cult movies has to do with clowns. But I think learning about the history and learning about the Kyoto brothers and just everything they did. I mean, they were making movies when they were like 13 15 years old like in the in their basement and now look at like what they're doing and the fact that they put together a movie like that I mean it's it's schlocky it's it's got it's odd moments but that is what makes it incredible nobody had really put together a movie that had that convergence of clowns and sci-fi And I think that a lot of people kind of looked at that as a blueprint for many other movies that came out. I mean, I just watched the original Terrifier the other night. And, you know, there's the scene where the girls, you know, encounter uh, Art the Clown in uh, the pizzeria and they don't take him seriously. And um, they are like, like one of them like wants to like take a selfie with him and just like. I can't help but wonder if even little moments like that took notes from killer clowns in some way. 
it's infinitely revisitable. There's just so many moments that are really enjoyable. It's almost a cozy movie to me in a way. There's so many things about it that I think define it as a cult movie. One of the things that um, has certainly come up, and and it happens with any cult movie, especially thanks to the internet and the ability for artists to be able to like create their own commerce is fan merch and when i was um at midsummer scream this past summer i bought two t-shirts one was a midsummer scream t-shirt and the other was this really great killer clowns like an artist had done this sort of day glow thing and and it's kind of abstract it's very few lines but anyone who's a fan of the movie knows what it is it's a bunch of the clowns on a t-shirt and so i'm wondering is there anything that you have that helps support those cozy feelings that would be a a piece of killer clown merchandise. Do you have any of the masks? Do you have a killer clowns blanket that you snuggle up with? I do not. I do have this killer clowns t-shirt that I'm wearing right now. It's fan made. It has a few of the cotton candy cocoons on it. Oh, that's very cool. Now the audience obviously can't see it, but we can, it's fabulous. So it's going to sound like I was leading like that. I could see that you had that t-shirt, but I couldn't, your camera didn't show it. So I knew you were wrapped in some sort of cozy comfort of clown killing. Yes. Wrapped in cotton candy, perhaps? Perhaps you don't see my cotton candy hammock in the back of my room. (laughs) I was hoping that you would say you were sleeping in one of the masks. (laughs) Amanda, thank you so much for celebrating this movie, for making us part of your celebration, and then bringing Killer Clowns to Midnight Mass. Uh, Before we head off, where can people find you and your work? So you can find me on social media. I'm on Twitter on by a Bartlett, B-Y-A-B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T or on Instagram, Amanda Bartlett, spelled the same way with an underscore or you can see my work on sfgate.com. I just wrote an article about uh, people finding a meteorite. If you want to read this fantastic article about killer clowns that uh, Michael and I were a part of uh, in the Chiodo Brothers uh, that Amanda wrote. Um, it's on SFGate. I'm sure a simple, quick Google search will lead you right to it. Amanda, we cannot thank you enough. Uh, also, Amanda, it should be said that you are one of the most active and supportive people on our Patreon. We uh, have done many Zoom parties with you. We're kicking back up now that we've launched season three. So we hope to see you at a Zoom party very soon. Yes, of course. I want to thank you for your podcast. It has really stoked my love of cult movies and encouraged me to dive into so many movies, including Revisiting Killer Clowns. So thank you for everything you do. Absolutely. Thank you. And that was our interview with the amazing Amanda Bartlett, who, as I mentioned in the intro and we discussed all throughout, just recently did a deep dive on the history of Killer Clowns for SF Gate and really inspired this whole episode not just with her article, but with her passion for this movie. I love how much Amanda loves this movie. And you can tell by digging deep, it just made her love it more, which makes her our people, truly. Well, and she literally is our people because Amanda is probably 
one of our most loyal listeners. She listens to all the shows. She's very active on our Patreon. Yes. Where we've cultivated um, a bit of a community of folks who are engaged in talking about the cult movies we cover and other cult movies. We also include special episodes over there on the Patreon called our mini masses, where we tackle a subject or a movie that we're not going to dedicate a whole Midnight Mass podcast to. And one thing is for sure that Amanda is one of our most active Patreon members, and she always comes to the Zoom party and talks cult movies. So I love that because she obviously gets to take a bit of her passion, her personal passion, and turn it into part of her work as a writer for SFGate. And yeah, that was just great. That was a great project to be a part of. And I hope people who are listening to the podcast check out the article because it is extensive and it will inevitably have some tidbits that we're not covering on the show today. With this whole revisiting of the movie, has there been anything for you, Peaches, do you have a renewed love of killer clowns? You said you always loved it, but I think this conversation has really, really led me to understand just how integrated into the cult landscape it has become. Well, I think in a way that might be a good segue into introducing our next guest because I met him through you. You had found out that he was a big fan of killer clowns um, when you noticed he had some of the spirit Halloween merch in his home. And I love meeting people, you know, on this podcast because It's such an interesting way to get to know someone, to just sort of cold interview them, even though you knew this person, I didn't know them. And I found his love for this movie and the way that he described the movie to quite frankly be infectious. And so I wonder if the listeners experience that to some degree, because clearly we've talked about this before. There are movies that you and I both love and we're both obsessed with, and I'm sure our enthusiasm comes through. Then there are cult movies that one of us loves more than the other. And then there are cult movies where we're both appreciative of them, but they're not necessarily personal passions of ours. And I'll say that with Killer Clowns, I have a Killer Clowns t-shirt, which I've been wearing lately. I bought it this past summer. Like, I really like this movie. But he made me like it more. You know, his passion for it rubbed off on me. His eloquence and extreme devotion to it really made me reassess. I love this movie and I was glad that we did it. But it is funny because there are certain subgenres of horror and cult cinema that speak more to us than others. And I've always been somewhat resistant of circus horror. I'm not afraid of circuses. I'm not afraid of clowns, but it just was an aesthetic that didn't always do it for me. But I liked this movie. And then hearing him talk about it, as well as knowing what Amanda's research into it was and hearing both of their voices combined in this episode, made me be like, oh, I think now I fully get why. Rather than beat around the bush, we want you to hear this person's passion. Our next guest is a writer, director, producer that I know here from the horror scene in Los Angeles. He's extremely talented. He has shorts that have been hits of the festival circuit. He's worked with many luminaries in the world of genre. He's S.H. Stewart, and he's here to talk to us about killer clowns from outer space right now. get too cozy in those cotton candy cocoons the celebration isn't over yet to keep this circus going we're joined now by a guest who is not only an avowed killer clown enthusiast but a celebrated filmmaker in his own right 
The writer and director of the recent festival hit Dryland, he also wrote the Amanda Wiss starring feature The Id, Halloween Tale of Terror, Where Are You, as well as several episodes of the acclaimed Earbud Theater. He's a writer, director, producer, editor, and so much more. Please welcome S.H. Stewart, who we also call Sean. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Peaches and Michael. Thank you. We are thrilled to be talking with you because somehow uh, uh, Michael discovered that you are a big fan of killer clowns from outer space. And when we have a fan on the podcast, we usually like to start with the most obvious question, which is, how did it all begin? What What are your earliest memories? This is partially memory, partially, you know, secondhand. I kind of have to go by uh, what I'm told because it was very, very young when I was first introduced to this film. Um, so when Killer Clowns initially came out, you know, it had a very brief theatrical run and then found most of its success on home video and on uh, paid cable. So when I was a kid, it was probably, this had to be, maybe a year or so after its initial release. I was at home with my dad. My mom was out. It was his night to look after me. And he was going to go take a bath looking for something on the TV to keep me occupied, you know, so that he could have 15 minutes, 20 minutes to himself. Uh, he's flipping through the channels and he comes upon HBO back in the days when, you know, they would cycle through a lot of the same movies over and over and over again. One of them that I didn't know about at the time uh, was Killer Clowns from Outer Space. He landed on this film somewhere in the midst of, he tells me a parade. So I'm guessing it's probably that sequence when they're coming down the block in the, with the big vacuum, uh, you know, collector for cotton candy cocoons. But all he sees is a, pari a parade of clowns marching down the street, streamers, and he figures, oh, great. You know, this was back in the day. It was the 80s. So people still, I feel like there was, there was cynicism, but when it came to certain things like a clown, like a circus, clowns, parades, you know, that was relatively wholesome. You could depend on that. So he plopped me in front of the TV, said, okay, here you go. This should keep you busy for a little bit. Clowns, what's more innocent? He goes up and is in the bath for maybe two minutes, if that. I feel like that was probably generous. And he hears me come charging up the steps, trundling up the stairs, and I start banging on the door, just screaming, no clowns! No clowns! And he came out, he comes out of the uh, the bath, and that was how he discovered Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Immediately traumatized, but in the best possible way. Obviously, you know, like so many um, horror movies from our youth, I feel like there's that initial terror and then a kind of fascination. And as soon as I came of age, maybe like three, four years later, when I'm, I don't know, about seven years old, when I can start to make my own choices about what I want to pick up from the video store, and I'm just starting to tiptoe into horror films, lo and behold, Killer Clowns from Outer Space is at one of the local video stores, and it's PG-13. So I can get away with, you know, hey, I, I, I want to see this gory horror movie, and there's nothing you can say about it because it's not rated R. So rented the old, uh, what is it, the media uh, release, watched that by myself and really felt this sense of the movie connected with me in a way that was just very special. I could feel it on a very uh, intrinsic level and I fell in love with it. You know, there was obviously the seed there planted from my dad's great mistake, but then that evolved into something that was just a fascination and a giddy love for this movie. And it was the one that I think because Killer Clowns back then was so hard to come by. I would have loved 
never never could have foreseen a day when I would have a DVD of Killer Clowns from Outer Space, let alone, you know, a Blu-ray release with, uh, you know, mountain of special features. I was at the mercy of kind of this one video that they had in stock at this local video store. Anywhere else, it was impossible. They didn't carry it at Blockbuster or any of the other retail chains back in that, uh, you know, the early days of that. Buying it was pretty much out of the question. I remember seeing one copy at a flea market several years later when I was looking to, you know, really start becoming a collector and they wanted $150 for it because the the media one had been out of print for so long. And I, I passed on that. But this was in the early days where I would just rent the VHS over and over again until that local video store closed. If it played on the sci-fi channel at like 6 a.m., you might come across it. And, you know, that that was a very fortunate day. But it wasn't until, you know, the DVD revolution in the early 2000s when MGM released in their midnight movies line, they started dredging up a lot of their B labels, a lot of their, you know, the the movies that they had in the, the Charles Band library and, you know, some of their other connections to Empire and uh, Transworld Media. And they put out that beautiful uh, DVD. And that was a dream come true for somebody like me. Here I am with that yeah. beloved Blu-ray edition and all the merchandise you could possibly hope they would make. I've known you for a while, but how I found out that this movie was near and dear to your heart was I was at your home for a Halloween party and you had one of the killer clown guns that Spirit Halloween put out as part Indeed. of their collectible line. And I said, do you love this movie? And then you told me the story about your dad. And I'm like, well, clearly this is a Midnight Mass guest in the making. <laughs> the trajectory of Killer Clowns was that it was nigh impossible to see. Fast forward to now, we've got Spirit Halloween doing a line on it. There's a video game coming out. It's got a haunt at Halloween Horror Nights. From this thing that felt like it was sort of your movie because it was so hard to come by to this behemoth that has permeated horror pop culture how do you feel now knowing how hard it was to get that vhs tape going to the store and being able to buy funko pops of the, the clowns it's weird right because i guess as fans you do feel that you know and, and i don't want to reduce it to anything so petty as a you know i i was there before it was cool but <laughs> i'm not saying that but it is there's there's a surreality to it to have known this movie for so long with a very particular identity. This is a small, bizarre, really weird movie for like-minded people like myself. You develop a kinship with the movie. And then to watch it become so much bigger, there is a little twinge inside that, that says, oh, is it losing a little bit of that peculiarity? Is it, is it losing a little bit of that special quality? That's how I feel about drag. It's the same sort of thing, right? Where it's like, it's in the mainstream and you, and that's, and as fans, you, and not, and I'm not saying this is right to build an identity around, you know, film. I'm not a big believer in uh, tying myself so much to, to a project to the point that I feel like, oh, you know, this is, I, I don't want to be a gatekeeper on stuff like that, you know, and say, oh, this is this is mine. The little kid who was sitting there watching this movie picked up from the local video store. I always knew this movie was special. It's gone almost beyond cult classic hit now to mainstream media franchise. Mazes at Halloween Horror Nights in Hollywood and Orlando, like both coasts. And that indicates a very large permeation of the film, not just through the horror community, but on a much bigger level, 
Like, I feel like now you could show iconography from this film to the general public and a good portion of folks would probably recognize it. They might not know the title, but they'd probably say, oh, I know what those things are. Yeah, I've, I've seen them. You know, the same way they might recognize the Gremlins. Or which which is wild to me to be saying something like that, because we're talking about a small trans world entertainment production, you know, done for two million dollars versus a massive production. But right now, when you look at the merchandising, when you go to Spirit Halloween, I feel like the Killer Clowns merchandise outnumbers the merchandise for Gremlins, even Beetlejuice. You know, movies that have had a very large following for a very long time are now uh, running up against Killer Clowns from Outer Space in Halloween retail, which is nuts to me. But it makes me happy to know that this film has reached an audience that wide, that it's resonating with that many people. I wonder what that must feel like for the Kyotos. You bringing this up to this degree, you're convincing me that, like, I can't believe I never screened this back in the day at Midnight Mass. My sense is that it was on a list of ours, but we could, uh, we were doing 35 millimeter prints. And my sense is, is that I was depending on my, film booker down in LA to to source these things. So my sense is that we couldn't find it, but it still frustrates me to think like, God, this would have been such a great uh, killer Midnight Mass show back in the early 2000s, late 90s. And the next thing is there was a time in the not so distant past where the cult around this film just was not as big. Um, And I think one of the things that's made it grow has been the celebration of its aesthetic, its merchandise, the characters, the the t-shirts, even before, you know, the uh, Universal Horror Nights, just the celebration of, of all the fun stuff about this movie. You're talking about it like surpassing Beetlejuice in some ways, which makes me wonder if the Chiodo brothers should turn it into a Broadway musical. Like, what's next for it? You know, because that's sort of the trajectory when a movie is so cult that it becomes popular and then it's got this popular cult of popularity. You know, Mean Girls, Bring It On, Beetlejuice. They've all become Broadway musicals. So what do you think? Should Should we push them to do a musical? As a musical theater fan and a horror movie lover, that is my sweet spot. So, yeah, I'm, I'll sign that petition. Um, to to touch on uh, two points. First off, Peaches, you can't blame yourself because unless I'm incorrect here, I don't believe there are many 35 millimeter prints. Yeah. I think there's only a handful for the most part. If it did screen, it didn't get a very wide distribution at first. But if it did screen in theaters, I think they were mostly 16 millimeter. Oh, wow. And that only a few handful of 35 millimeter prints existed, which um, if I'm recalling correctly, this was from when I went to go see a screening of it 10 years ago or so at the Independent in downtown L.A. with the Kyotos and John Masiri in person. And this was, I think, one of the only 35 millimeter prints that they had. And it was really special to be seeing it there. Um, I don't know if it, how many others exist. I think that I was able to see one. I believe the one at New Beverly must have been a 35 millimeter print. I believe that's yeah. all the show. Yeah, that's a tough one. So yeah. to, to not be able to find it on 35 is not not surprising. To your second point about what they're going to do next, I know that for the longest time they wanted to do a sequel. And I mean going back like 20 years almost. I, I, they've been talking about doing a sequel. And you can see it right in the merchandising and in all of that, you know, just the cornucopia of iconography and 
rich designs that they came up for that. There's a whole world there that I don't think they got to explore. And it's uh, they talked about how they had franchise aspirations for this. And unless I'm mistaken, I think they also announced a while ago that sci-fi was going to partner with them on maybe a sequel or a TV series. I don't know whatever became of that, but I know for the longest time they've talked about doing a sequel and that's yeah. been kind of this uh you know golden fleece of killer clowns fans that you know one day maybe maybe there'll be a a second one no it's interesting when i was doing some research in preparation for this episode i did run across several articles from only a handful of years ago where the kyoto brothers talk about a sequel and yeah sci-fi channel i think was attached at one point because they did that critters sequel which of course the kyotos have their fingers in the critters world as well Something I wanted to talk about, which came to mind a little bit while we were talking about the unavailability of the 35 millimeter print is, of course, film fans like us bemoan that we want to go see it theatrically. But I can't help but feel that in a way, how Killer Clown's trajectory into growth of cult film really was never relying on theater anyway. It was those home video rentals, those cable screenings. And as you've been talking and you talked about how that thing that happens when you're a kid and you see something that scares you so much that you become fascinated with it. And a lot of horror creators have that in common where we go back and end up embracing the thing that we were scared of. But the thing about Killer Clowns, as you also pointed out, is it's PG-13. So it was easy to show on cable. And it became this thing that a whole generation started watching on late night television. And even though they're very different and one has the behemoth of Disney behind it, I started thinking about Hocus Pocus, which of course was a failure as well. But is it that killer clowns like Hocus Pocus, the reason the cult grew and grew and grew to where we're at now, where there's theme park attractions, et cetera, et cetera, because it was gateway horror in a way. Is that, do you, do you think that this is a gateway piece? I'm so glad you brought this up, Michael. I love talking gateway horror. Um, (laughs) I would I would put this maybe on that upper tier of gateway hard. There's the ones like, you know, there's there's the early entries like Hocus Pocus, Casper, Nightmare Before Christmas, which are great for, you know, real little kids who kind of want to dip their toe. And then there's this next level where I'd put movies like Killer Clowns, The Gate, Monster Squad. You graduated from uh, Hocus Pocus and, you know, maybe, uh, you know, Halloween Town. Now, let's see, we're going to we're going to up the ante a little bit. Now we're talking real monsters with real uh, deadly ambitions. We're talking gore effects. This is so important with gateway horror. They're the family ones that I feel like you watch with the parents and you, you know, you, you get that sense of whether or not this is for you. Once you know it is, then there are those films that are really the test for your threshold. And if this is if this is going to be the thing that you fall in love with for the rest of your life. And if you watch a movie like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, you know, at that young age, and you can get past the concept of dozens and dozens of people being cocooned alive in, you know, cotton candy that melts you down and you can stomach the sight of a biker getting his head knocked off by, you know, a, an extendo boxing glove and things like that. And it gives you that real sense of genuine horror. If you're on board with that if you if that's fun that's you know you you generally you never look back i would count this among gateway horror movies but it's definitely i would say a stronger gateway horror ironically 
I would also put a movie that was intended, and there's going to be a real neat little connection here, but um, a movie that was intended to be more in the hocus pocus camp, Ernest Scared Stupid, I would kind of put in that same camp and not just uh, with Killer Clowns and not just because the Kyoto's did the effects and there's a lot of crossover there with the, the clowns and the trolls, but because something I really admire about Ernest Scared Stupid, and this could be said of Killer Clowns as well, but Ernest Scared Stupid maybe even more so because it really isn't intended for children. I love that that movie is not a comedy with horror elements for kids. It's a horror movie for kids that has a lot of comic elements to kind of help make that more palatable. But when things get scary, things get scary. Even though you've got, you know, the wonderful Jim Varney making appearances throughout, when that troll comes for the kids in several sequences, they're yeah. straight horror scenes that are quite frightening. And that's that's important. That's important for kids to experience that. It's important for kids to grow with that. Killer clowns, you know, then it's the next step because that is not only intentionally scary at points, that is Killer Clowns is wonderfully sinister. It's got such a great sense of black comedy in it. It's one of those where, yes, it's a horror comedy, but I'll always keep it firmly in the camp of horror because of some of the stuff that, that happens in that. And it was that kind of stuff that when I was a little kid, I needed to kind of test the waters before I could get into stuff like you know, Nightmare on Elm Street and, you know, some of those gorier, uh, while still fantastical films, I, I had to know that I was okay with the monster shadows and, you know, <laughs> these popcorn jack-in-the-box monstrosities emerging out of toilets and, uh, you know, all the other just wonderful array of uh, Baroque and gruesome imagery in it. And Killer Clowns, uh, it did that for me. Like I stated earlier, it didn't, it didn't just... Uh, you know, it wasn't just palatable to me. It was alluring in a way that I couldn't define then. And I can try to define now, but it kind of goes beyond that. It's one of those movies that has stuck with me my entire life. It's fed into my own sensibilities. It's definitely helped me to understand what I like about the genre, but also just film in general. One thing I, I always observe about Killer Clowns is it's such a fun premise. But there are a lot of movies that go for that wild, over-the-top, high-concept film. And, you know, they'll they'll go for it out the gates, but not necessarily achieve it. You've got a lot of films out there that can't even live up to their own title. But Killer Clowns from Outer Space promises something big. It promises something wild, and it actually delivers on it. You go through that movie, and every, you know, aspect of that concept is touched upon as much as they could in a 90 minute <laughs> film they get so much mileage out of the simple wonderful and and it really is it's a it's the premise is all there in the title killer clowns from outer space and that's what you get and it's done masterfully i don't know if masterful is a term that is usually applied <laughs> to this film. i think maybe what we're all agreeing on is that the magic of this film is that it's a kooky concept that you hope is going to deliver in a satisfying way. And then this film over delivers. It surprisingly delivers. And like some of the other movies you've mentioned where as a young person, you can go back and you can watch it over and over and over again. And you can like see new things and enjoy new things or focus on new favorite things the sheer amount of just cleverness that's 
injected into the film. For example, you know, we we talked about you have a piece of merchandise that is one of the weapons in the films. Well, they could have just given the clowns one weapon, really, but they don't. They they give them multiple weapons. We have the cotton candy cocoons. We've got the the guns that create the cocoons. We've got the popcorn bazookas. We've got acid pies, mallets, uh, <laughs> the boxing glove arm, the oh, the puppets, the, the puppets, the balloon oh, the animal puppets. Yeah. yeah, like all of this. That's. Like you say, it's a 90-minute movie, and we're, we haven't even scratched the surface yet in terms of the set pieces, and it's rich. I got to call out the uh, the pizza box gag because <laughs> I just love it so much, and it's, it's the timing of it, you know? Obviously, a lot of people get zapped. A lot of people get cotton candy cocoon, but throughout that movie, there's constant new innovative gruesome ways of dispatching uh, the various citizens. And you can you can feel the Kyoto's delighting in that. And one of the things we talked about with our other guests, and of course, when talking about killer clowns, one of the fun, you know, Fangoria of old questions is, what is your favorite kill? Because there are so many innovative ones. And you mentioned the pizza box, but we couldn't even in our last conversation about this settle on one that w- we all agreed on because they were all great. That's tough. The acid pies are great, especially the line delivery right before his death. What are you going to do with those pies, boys? <laughs> um, if I had to pick one, I mean, I am a big fan of the shadow, the monster shadow puppet. If I had to pick one death, I would have to really stop and think about this. I know the scariest death to me is the citizen who gets cotton candy cocooned at the hand puppet show in that gazebo that is so uncanny to me uh very much the same way pennywise is frightening you know because he's in a sewer and a clown's just not supposed to be there the idea of a puppet show in a lone gazebo in the middle of the night with nobody else around is very unsettling to me this is one of those sublime horror comedies that really it can be funny and scary at the same time. And when you're watching that show where they're doing, you know, the the kind of updated Punch and Judy with the two hand puppets, and it's got this comical, almost bouncy quality to it until it turns and the clown reveals himself and emerges from that tiny little puppet performing stage and then zaps the guy with the gun the Kyoto's talk about how much of this is about, you know, clowns being able to be so alluring and, you know, a clown's always friendly and you've got no problem going up to a clown and these things use that, you know, to their benefit. That's one of those great deaths where by the time this guy realizes, oh, this isn't right at all, it's too <laughs> late. And then he gets zapped and, and added to the, uh, to the stockpile of cotton candy cocoons. That one really got me when I was a kid and even still unsettles me when I watch it today. I chose the acid pies um, because of of exactly what you described, but also just because it's obviously the least complicated as far as the special effect of it. You know, just the crew throwing pies at the actor and the actor selling it for better or worse. That animated shadow moment is just, it's great. You know, it's wonderful. It's funny. It's startling. And it's, one of those that again it's it's funny especially this you know the whole lead up to it with the various shadow puppets and the impossibility of washington crossing the delaware and and all of that (laughs) yeah but uh then like a lot of these moments in the film when it turns and when all of a sudden you've got this very peewee's big adventure looking uh t-rex shadow puppet 
eye with a glowing red eye, you know, it strikes something very primal in you, which is maybe that whole, what the whole thing is playing on this primal fear of clowns and the untrustworthiness of, of clowns. But it's that it, it really is so unsettling to be just having a good time, you know, go while you're watching a clown's performance and then all of a sudden on a dime, it turns and it's a nightmare come to life, an abstract nightmare come to life and compound that with just the sadism of the clowns, you know, the way yeah. they'll, they've got those sneering grins and those mechanical laughs. And in that sequence, the way, you know, even while the clown's doing the shadow puppet, he's got that sneering grin on his face and almost does like a semi take to the camera. Like, yeah, you know what's coming. <laughs> and speaking of the sadism of the clowns, here's the other impossible question to put to such a uh, fan of the film as yourself. Do you have a favorite clown in the movie? It all comes down to the exquisiteness of the puppetry. And this time talking about puppetry, I'm talking about the uh, mechanics of the face itself. I love Bubbles. He's one of the he's one of the larger clowns. He's not, I think one is called Fatso. And he's the one I think, Fatso is the one that drinks out of the cotton candy cocoon through the, through the crazy straw. But Bubbles is the one, I believe, who arrives at the during one of the clown montages and it's got like a box of candy. It's uh, supposed to be like a candy gram. And uh, the woman takes it and she's, oh, is this, uh, is this from you? And she's turning to her husband. And then they do a close up on Bubbles. You know, and when they're the larger clowns, when they're the walk around clowns, they've got the heads that are more or less uh, static with those great dazed looks on their faces. Uh, but then when it goes in for the close up, it's one of the mechanized heads and Again, part of it for me is those beats, those great beats that the Kyoto's execute with such confidence because they know exactly what this movie is. They know exactly what it needs to be. And he lifts into frame the ray gun and his face goes from this smile to this like frowning smile sneer. And it's this great moment. It's just a beat, but it all comes together in the timing of you know lift the gun and then the frown with this little they do a great John Masiri does this little dings in the, <laughs> in the score to punctuate it it's perfect and the clown looks perfect you really get that sense of these things are evil and they have fun doing it they're not just predators they're not just carnivores they take delight in tormenting people and pulling that surprise gotcha now you're dead you get that right there in his expression and it's just perfectly done. So that, that probably makes him my favorite of the clowns. I just love your sheer love for the film. It's obvious that you love it. As we're talking and you're describing that sort of sense, I'm like, oh my God, they're, they're kind of like Cenobites with a sense of humor. Butterball kind of looks like a killer clown. You know, yeah, if you look at that, right? we've talked about this potential sequel that hopefully someday maybe we'll we'll get to see what would your hope be for that would you want it to go further would you want it to be rated r what do you want to see the clowns do that they don't do in the first film i don't necessarily need a sequel Ooh. i don't i don't necessarily need a franchise because i think the first one is such a perfect artifact i think that's a matter of so many factors that could never be duplicated in a million years it was, you know, the time, it was the budget, it was the novelty, it was the fact that they had to just scrounge and scrimp and rely on their abundance of creativity. You know, luckily, you've got the Kyoto's at the helm of this thing. 
three incredibly talented, incredibly, you know, movie lovers who have an entire, you know, just a reserve to, to fall back on. And it just turned out perfect. I don't think that could be replicated. My concern is that there would be so much behind it that would be informed by expectation that just was not there for Killer Clowns from Outer Space, the first movie, because there were no expectations for a movie called Killer Clowns from Outer Space. And now you have the weight of this legacy and merchandising and expectations that follow with that. I'd love to see them make an entire franchise because I want the Kyotos to benefit from this. I want them to be able to enjoy the newfound success and fandom that this movie has found. For my money, I don't think you could ever do better than the Killer Clowns from Outer Space, the first one. Th- that That's my nitpicky, uh, you know, pretentious response. If I just had to say what I would love to see from a Killer Clowns sequel, um, I'd love to see them touch on more of the circus tropes. I know they have a bajillion of them that they never got to in the original film. So I feel there would be no shortage of awesome set pieces. I'd like for it to remain PG-13, hard PG-13. Like the original, you know, the original, I feel, is right on that cusp of being an R. In fact, if the MPAA wanted to, I feel like they could have given that an R and nobody really would have batted an eye. You know, you could watch the movie and be like, it's either a a really hard PG-13 or it's a soft R. I like that it's accessible for younger audiences. That's that was a big part of it for me. I would love the movie regardless, I'm sure, but I don't know that I would have the same relationship with it if it wasn't one of the few gory creature effects laden horror movies of the 80s that I could regularly access as a kid. um, I don't know if I would have that same relationship. So I would hope that they would keep that in mind and remember that kids are going to have a great appreciation for these monsters. I'm glad you brought it back around to your relationship with the movie because in many ways, that's what this whole conversation has been about. You've spoken about this throughout all of your answers, and we talked on the macro scale about the world's relationship with the film. But as we know, cult films are movies that we grow with and we take with them throughout our lives. That's what makes them special. We become members of their cult. And something I like to ask all of our guests, so I guess as a final question, I'm going to ask you, how has your relationship with Killer Clowns from Outer Space changed since that first bathtub evening to now? I mean, obviously you got over your fear of it, but has your feeling on the movie changed? I know obviously you still love it, but how has it evolved or not? Maybe I'm not as afraid of it as I used to be. And that's true, but I feel like that's always gonna be there deep inside. And that's one of the things that makes me go back to it over and over and over again is no matter how many times I watch it, there's always gonna be something about that simple concept that scares the hell out of me. You know, these clowns with their inscrutable faces that just, you feel like they're not trustworthy. And in this case, they're really, really not. But personally growing up with it, when I was a kid, I loved it. The world of the killer clowns existed. These characters existed and I could watch it and lose myself in it and appreciate it for everything it was doing to entertain me. As I've grown up, one of the things that I just marvel at every time I watch and one of the reasons I love to watch it as a filmmaker myself is I love so many of what the Kyotos are doing with this film as a passion project. When you watch the movie, it's in those beats. It's in those set pieces that, you know, are executed with such confidence. It always reminds me, whatever I'm doing, as crazy as the concept might sound, when you think about your own work and you're thinking, well, is there is there an audience for this? But they trusted their love for what they were doing. 
they had faith in that and they followed that through and it didn't pay off immediately. It kind of bombed and it took time, but look at where we are now. That passion, that love for what they were doing, it did matter. And it resulted in a movie that maybe wasn't a huge box office success when it first came out, but now it's so, so much more. It's a movie that has permeated our pop culture because there was that audience. They just needed time to find it. It's a reminder that you need to be true to what you love and what your passions are. And, you know, whatever your art is, even if it's as wild and crazy as something like Killer Clowns from Outer Space, (laughs) if you are true to it, then it's going to resonate with people. And that love will be felt. And it has been and it'll continue to be because it's always going to be there in the film. It's the ultimate cult movie success story. And we've come to some conclusions. Um, I think we are all in agreement that sequel, not necessarily, you know, we don't need it necessarily. Certainly, I think we can all agree that if the Kyotos aren't doing it, we don't want it. Someone else will do it with CGI. Fuck that. We do not want that. Please no. (laughs) You know, flush that down the toilet. But I wouldn't mind a Julie Taymor directed Broadway <laughs> musical with puppets. Abstract clown puppets with like four or five people exactly. operating Clownzilla on stage. I think we all want that. So, you know, with that, we'll, we'll wrap things up. And Sean, we can't thank you enough for coming on the podcast today. You've been a wonderful guest. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you so much. All right, that was our interview with the fantastic and clearly obsessed Killer Clown superfan and filmmaker S.H. Stewart. Hopefully you, the listeners, now understand what we were talking about when we introduced him and said he just talks about this movie in such a way like his love for it is infectious. I feel like doctorates aren't given out for cult films, although they should be. I think you and I would be multiple PhDs at this point. But Sean Stewart, I feel, earned his PhD in killer clownology. One thing I wanted to kind of go back to that you brought up that I'd never heard before and my brain is still uh, thinking about it is this idea of circus horror. I'd never heard that described, but of course there's sort of a micro genre of these movies. We talked with Amanda a good degree about clowns that are scary being presented in movies. So I feel like we've covered that. We, of course, mentioned the obvious ones like Pennywise and Poltergeist and whatnot because they were so impactful. But circus horror, that is another thing. It doesn't have to include clowns. And the movie that jumped into my mind was Joan Crawford's Berserk. And I thought, oh, right, Berserk is is circus horror. Todd Browning's Freaks Freaks. in many ways, you know. Toby Hooper's Funhouse. Funhouse, yes. Wow. And, you know, there's a um, genre of of haunt movies that I think Mm -hmm. could kind of be considered circus horror. Um, One I really like is called Haunt. And um, they're about, uh, you know, haunted attractions like Funhouse is about a funhouse. But those exist often in theme parks and under the umbrella of circus Yeah, circus horror. Well, now I'm going to be thinking about that. So I guess for the listeners, like, I'd love to know, like, what's your favorite circus horror movie? Well, we'll, of course, put this up on the Patreon to get people's feedback. But the one that popped into my mind was Berserk. 
Have you ever seen Berserk? I have. I love Joan Crawford. And of course, that's one of those kind of golden examples of circus horror that I think works really well. It's not that I dislike circus horror. I, I think I, I came down hard on it uh, before we talked to S.H. Stewart. But you said like with a real snotty attitude, I've never been a fan of circus horror. I did say it like that. <laughs> it was exactly like that. It was like, just so you know, peaches. I personally have never been a fan of circus horror. It's been a genre that I've struggled with, I think, because aesthetically it doesn't always speak to me. But I also get why it's so good for horror, because when you think about it, what is a circus? It's a, it's a traveling troupe of the unusual that kind of appears in your town. There's something mysterious about a circus popping up and then disappearing you know, by the next moon or whatever. And so there's a lot there that's really, really prime for spooky storytelling. Uh, I guess, you know, as with anything, it's just all how you handle it because something wicked this way comes is definitely circus horror. And that's one of, I think, one of the great, great examples of gateway horror that exists in the world. Have you ever seen um, Big Top Pee Wee? Not only have I seen it, but there is a uh, Airstream resort in Joshua Tree called Hicksville, and I stayed in the Pee Wee um, Airstream cabin. They have a John Waters themed one too, right? Yeah. So they have two locations. They have one in Idlewild and Idlewild is all cabins. And when I went to Idlewild, I stayed in the John Waters themed one. And then when I was at Hicksville, the Airstream location in Joshua Tree, they're all Airstreams. And I stayed in the Pee Wee one. And it had like all of this peewee merch inside. And it was kind of like set up to be like the place that he hangs out in Big Top Peewee. So while not my favorite of the Peewee movies, I now have an affinity for it because I got to, you know, sleep inside the film. Were you disappointed because you found out it was about a circus rather than Peewee being um, a big top? <laughs> well, I mean, it would be a bold assumption to think that Peewee is a big top. It would also not necessarily be that far from the truth because I think a lot of people outside of the queer community assume that Nelliness and sissiness means that you're a bottom. And Correct. in fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. there are way more drag queen tops than there are bottoms. And often the most macho masculine muscle lumberjack bear, he wants nothing more than to get it up the ass. So, you know, that's a little lesson for all of our listeners out there who don't know that probably Peewee is a big top. That's probably what's going on. And there's some listener right now that's saying, what the fuck does this have to do with killer clowns from outer space? <laughs> well, ultimately, this is an episode about cream pies. So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Acid cream pies. Oh, my God. Now we're really going down a rabbit hole. Just to bring it back to why we got on that tangent uh, was because of circus horror and um I would imagine that um, wax museum movies would would kind of fall under that umbrella. And obviously all the midway freak kind of carnivalesque movies. I love that genre. Anyway, this has been such a great episode. I think we've renewed our own love of killer clowns from outer space. We've embraced the fact that this is a movie whose popularity is ever growing and we feel like it's well-deserved. And, and I hope the Kyoto's get to do something more with this. I don't know what, but I'm telling you, Michael, I like the idea of a musical. I really do. Me too. And I feel the same about the renewed love. And these are some of my favorite episodes that we do of Midnight Mass, because as we frequently point out, you know, we're fans 
first. And we we right. always have a, a thread of fandom running through everything we do. But I think the episodes that become really special to Peaches and I are the ones that remind us how much we love these movies or require us to recontextualize and fall in love with a movie all over again. These kind of episodes excite me because I was excited to do Killer Clowns from Outer Space, but now that we've done it, I'm so in love with the movie again. And that just makes me happy. I want Killer Clowns bed sheets. I feel like we can make that happen. I bet they exist. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of Killer Clown stuff out there. Well, if you too want nothing more than to be enveloped in a cocoon of cotton candy where you can rest for all eternity, then you may be one of the children of the popcorn now. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight Mass is created and co-hosted by Peaches Christ and Michael Verratti. The series is produced by Joshua Grinnell, Michael Verratti, and Heather Dunham. The Midnight Mass score and theme music was composed by Andrew J. Sepperly. Midnight Mass is a Peaches Christ production. <laughs>